0: If you would take your Bibles with me please and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. If you are familiar with 1 Corinthians 15 it seems that there was some disruption going on amongst the other things that happened in Corinth regarding the resurrection of the dead and how it was a subject that Paul needed to address and he spends one whole chapter engaging This understanding so that everyone is crystal clear about what's going to happen. For your own personal study, I would encourage you to look at verses 20 through 26, where Paul plots out for us a timeline of the end times, and I've talked with some of you about this and taught on this one time here. Uh, I encourage you to take your time and meditate on that throughout the week because of the hope that it gives and because Paul was not foggy in the slightest about the return of Jesus Christ, and especially the rapture of the church. And I believe that this is incredibly important, especially how much the rapture is attacked. In chapter 15, Paul begins by giving us the gospel. And I think that it's important that we read up until the point where we're going to start. Our main text is from 12 to 22, but let's start in verse 1. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren the gospel which i preached to you which also you received and which you in which also you stand by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which i preached to you unless you believed in vain in other words the gospel has not just a justifying aspect to it but for the believer in christ it has a sanctifying aspect to it For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, or some have passed away. That he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. For I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, my hope this morning is that some that are joining us are going to be those who would not consider themselves Christians, would not be considered saved, would not be considered redeemed. And I'm thankful that you have joined us this morning. But the one thing that we want to get clear as we step into this hypothetical question that is posed is that the gospel is that Jesus Christ has died for the sins of the world just as the Bible said that he would, that he has been buried, and that he has been raised from the grave just as the Bible said that he would. Resurrection and the idea of being raised up is mentioned more than 100 times in the New Testament, and it is a profound doctrine. It is replete and indispensable. It is something that is non-negotiable. And because Jesus Christ lives, he can actively offer salvation, and for all who believe in him, you will be saved. At that moment of belief, he gives you eternal life as a free gift, and your sins are never to be remembered again. That is the gospel hope of the living Savior of Jesus Christ. But there is a problem. In chapter 15, verse 12, Paul turns the conversation and he says, Now if Christ is preached, and of course that connects us to 11, So we preach and so you believed. If Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now let's pay close attention to what the contention seems to be amongst the people there. Notice that this is not a pagan issue. This is not something that is being talked about outside of the church, and it's run its way through the grapevine and has come into the church body for discussion. This is an in-house issue. So there are some among you, notice the pronoun there, that say there is no resurrection of the dead. Now notice it doesn't say that there are those in the church who are denying that Jesus raised from the dead. They're not denying that. They are affirming the resurrection. But the problem is, is that Jesus may have raised, yes, he's God in the flesh. He has power over that. He has died unto sin. But the problem was is that there's no resurrection of anyone else because no one else is like Jesus. Now, we can understand why an objection like that may be raised. Maybe you've raised that objection as well yourself. And the reason is is because, let's be honest, death has become a very comfortable part of life. It's become something that we live in fearful anticipation of, that we look forward to, that if we're browsing through the paper, we often pull the obituary section. Some people that we we look through, we, we realize that we knew them at one time. Every family experiences the funeral situation. We talk about putting our loved ones to rest. Death is part of our culture. Our culture is actually bent on death. Part of the orchestration of Satan's wiles in this world system is that death becomes something that we see as inevitable and inescapable. So we can understand why there may be some in the church who are reasoning through this idea and saying, well, for Jesus, yeah, because he's God in the flesh. But for everybody else, I just don't know about this. Maybe this wasn't something that was going to happen. Now, why is that important? Because part of the guarantee of Jesus' resurrection from the dead is that we will be raised with him. And in fact, when we start talking about what it is to live the Christ life, it's the affirmation of the fact that we've already been raised with him. We're just not living in the light of that truth. Now, I don't want to touch on that too much because we will be getting into that in the coming weeks. But what I think is important for us to think about is the repercussions of the fact that no one else will be resurrected from the dead. And so Paul entertains that hypothetical situation moving into Verse 13, notice what he says. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, here's your first consequence. There are actually seven consequences here. Here's your first one if you're taking notes. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Now this would immediately strike against the mentality that they would have been bringing to the table. Because they would have reasoned that Christ being God in the flesh and dying for sin had indeed raised from the dead. In fact, there were many people that saw him. Paul goes back and from verses 5 to 8, he talks about the appearances. Even though some had fallen asleep, there were still some alive. You could go to them and they say, yes, I talked with the resurrection Jesus Christ after his death, after his burial. But Paul says, wait a second, you're missing something. If the dead aren't raised, Christ isn't raised. Now, why is this important? Well, number one, it tells you for sure that Christ was actually dead. Christ had to be actually dead. Theories, the swoon theory and all these other things that people want to bring to the table that say that he wasn't really dead and that he was just asleep or had passed out or something like that in the tomb and then he somehow mustered enough courage or or strength in order to get the rock out of the way so that he could walk out are unfounded in this situation. There's no weight here in this argument. But what Paul does affirm is the fact that Jesus was genuinely dead. Number two, I think that it's important that we think about how believers in Christ and Jesus Christ himself are in a union with one another. They are one in the same because they are considered in Christ. Now notice, the resurrection of the dead seems to pertain particularly to believers, and we'll explain that a little bit more when we get into the ideas later on about those who have passed away, uh, have no hope whatsoever. That was just, they've perished, and, and, and they were, they're dead, and they have nothing else going on. We'll find that later on when we get into verse 18. But it seems to be pointing directly to believers. Believers have an incomparable union with Christ. We can never be separated from him. We are so wholly wrapped up in Jesus Christ that we will never be at any time apart from him ever in our lives. And when he returns and when he calls us to meet him in the air, in the clouds, we will be even more physically at face and in union with him on top of how we're already bound with him spiritually. So the reason why I stress on this point is because if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Christ would still be dead. And that creates an incredible problem. Notice it moves on to verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. If Jesus has not been resurrected, I have to scratch my head and ask the question, what am I doing on a Sunday morning? Why am I preparing throughout a week? Preaching Christ is an empty endeavor. That's what this word vain means here. It's actually used twice in this verse. And the idea is completely empty. It's devoid of any sort of substance It has no meaning, it has no credibility, there is no power, and what it tells us is that Jesus is just a man, and all we're doing is talking about, to great lengths, just a man. Why is that? Because Christ is inseparably positioned with the union of believers in Christ. And if there is no resurrection of the dead... There is no resurrection of Christ, and if there is no resurrection of Christ, there's no sense in speaking. Notice the next part here, the third thing. Your faith also is in vain. What good is it to believe in a dead Savior? Our faith would be without substance. Again, the word is empty. Our faith has no weight. This means that all hope is fleeting. Why did you believe in Jesus? If you remember, the gospel message talks to us about the forgiveness of sins. Well, that's scary if he's still dead because what staying power does a savior like that have? And I think you would say none. Notice that all hope is fleeting. There's no reason to look for better things. Why even bother to pray if your faith is in vain, if your conviction is, where you've actually looked at the situation about Jesus Christ and you've said, yes, that is true. Paul says, if the dead aren't raised and Christ isn't raised, you're a fool. You've believed in something that's not real. You've positioned yourself to topple. How about verse 15? We come to a fourth thing here. Notice he says, moreover, we, notice Paul's including himself, are even found to be false Witnesses, that's very interesting. This Greek word is the idea of of spreading a false testimony around to people. It's the idea of being a pseudo-martyr, to be false witnesses of God. Why? Because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. What does this tell us? It tells us that only God can raise the dead. And if he didn't raise the dead, then Paul has been giving a false testimony that calls God a liar. He is attributing things to God's credit of which God did not do. Notice again the union of one and the same with Christ and those who are anticipating the resurrection of the dead or questioning it. If this is the case, we're all false witnesses. Why would we bother to tell anybody in the marketplace? Why would we bother to call someone on the phone, to send an email, to post something on Facebook? You're misrepresenting God. Stop spreading the gospel. If Jesus is not alive, don't tell people about it. We were actually be testifying against God. We would be misrepresenting him if the dead are not raised. Now, here's the one that really pierces me. Number five. Notice it says here, verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Now, that's interesting because that's a different word. As used before in vain, it's the idea of being useless or fruitless. But here's what it is, interesting. You are still in your sins. Now the repercussions that stand behind this fifth point that Paul makes, if the dead are not raised, is traumatic. Number one, it states a very pertinent point that sin is more powerful than Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going throughout my daily life and I'm thinking about the things that intrude my thoughts, the things that I want to spout off and say, the things that want to corrupt my mind, the things that want to uh, appease my flesh, the things that we find ourselves, and we would never use this word, of course, in public, but that we lust after and that we covet after and that we want. And all of a sudden, we recognize that if Jesus Christ has not been raised, We have nowhere else to go but that. That is our normal. And that is a scary thought. Notice that the word sins here is in the plural. Meaning that our personal offenses committed against God have not been adequately handled by the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but if we're still in our sins, then why did he even bother to die? What was the point of his death if sin still has mastery over us? If anything, this stresses the hopelessness. But I don't want to pass by this point too quickly. I want to to make sure that we focus in on this idea because we need to think of sin in the way that the Bible handles sin. Because when we talk about the death of Christ and we talk about the threefold spiritual salvation that we've received... When we speak of our justification, we speak of the fact that we have been saved from the penalty of sin, which is death. Now, what does this tell you? It tells you that we have not been saved from eternal death. Even though Jesus has died, and even though we've believed in him, the reason why that belief would be considered worthless, as the NASB says here in verse 17, is because there is no life. We are still dead, though we have believed in Christ, if there is no resurrection. There's no eternal life. Now, the reason why this is important for us to understand is because resurrection is the Father's authentication that the payment for sins has been approved. That is important. The resurrection is his stamp of acceptance. Why would God allow for someone who died with sin upon them and for sins to be resurrected if the job that they did in paying for sins and answering for sin was an insufficient one. He would not allow that. Now, I want to show you a couple of scriptures. You don't have to turn there. You can just look at the screen and understand it. If you want to jot it down, it's fine. But I want to show you a few scriptures here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. I want to show you why this issue regarding the penalty of sin is so important. In Hebrews chapter 1, we have a beginning here talking about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. But in verse 3, it says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins. Now notice, that's talking about his death, his sacrifice. But included in that is also the approval of the Father in the resurrection. Now watch, because it doesn't touch on resurrection. It moves on to, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's something to think about. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, and therefore we are still in our sins, he is not sitting at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father is a place of position and privilege. It is a place of which Jesus is waiting to ascend the throne during the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ when the Father puts all of his enemies under his footstool. Now, this has huge, huge implications. If we were to look over at Hebrews chapter 10, there's another small section here that speaks to this, and you'll get the imagery of how it connects. In fact, there's a lot in Hebrews 10, 9 and 10 that deal with the high priestly work of Jesus Christ in paying for our sins. Look at verse 11 here, if you want to just look at it on the screen. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. If Jesus hasn't been raised, he's now been lumped in this common priest category, and that is unfounded. Verse 12, but he, notice speaking of Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. And immediately notice it passes over any mention of resurrection and moves to sat down at the right hand of God. What does this tell you? Not that resurrection is insignificant, not by any means, but the fact that the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection are both necessary components that deal with the idea of of his one sacrifice for sins for all time. Why is that? Because the presentation of his blood before the Lord needed to be approved. And the approval of that is the resurrection of Christ. Notice he sat down at the right hand of God, verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. It's important for us to recognize that if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, he is not sitting at the right hand of the Father. If payment is not approved, Christ is not seated there. So when we see such promises as Colossians 3 1, notice it's on the screen real quick Colossians 3 1, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, and if he has not raised, you have not been raised with him, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If Christ has not been resurrected, you cannot do that. You cannot seek the things above because there is nothing above for you. Here's what what that means, if we dare say it. There is no rest from sin. Sin is normal. Sin is here to stay. Sin is triumphant. Sin is just how we do life. I don't know about you, but I would deem that unacceptable. Notice the second point here when we talk about the idea of still being in our sins, if Christ hasn't been raised and our faith being futile, is is immediately it branches into the second tier of spiritual salvation, sanctification, meaning that there is no rescue from the power of sin. There is no alleviation, meaning our daily conduct. If the penalty of sin is Deals with the idea of eternal life. The power of sin deals with the idea of abundant life. If Christ has not been raised, there is no abundant life. With no resurrection, there is no new life to impart. The resurrection in him being raised to a newness of life is so that he can impart that newness of life that he owns to the believer in Christ. It is impossible. A Christ who has not been raised cannot live his life through us. Why? Because he is a dead Savior. And a dead Savior cannot save you from the power of sin over your life. Instead, we are left to our lives alone. Without his indwelling presence. Without resurrection, we find out not only is sin more powerful, but death is more powerful than our Savior. It is a horrible thing to think that Jesus is less than victorious, that he's less than the king, that he's less than alive. And I hope you see that if this line of thinking were to be carried out to its logical conclusion, you find a hopeless existence. There's no reason for living. There's no reason for continuing on. There's no reason for endeavoring in anything that is good or worthwhile for other people. Instead, it becomes a lot of religious exercises and a lot of instruction manual following in order to try to find some sort of alternative approval before God. And it's not possible. This now leads us to the sixth point that Paul wants to bring up. Notice that he says here next, verse 18, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Or if you want to look at it in this way, no resurrection, no hope. If you think about those who have known the Lord and have passed on, think about those that you have lost. Think about those that lived for his name, that were ardent evangelists, that were selfless in their giving, that were caring and all of their endeavors, because of their love relationship, their fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, what you find out is, is there was actually no hope for them. When they died, they died and they stayed dead. There is no future hope. There is no beyond for them. It is dead and it is done. They did not pass into God's presence. And here's the reason why. Without resurrection, access cannot be granted. Now, I am going to ask you to turn to this passage with me because I want you to mark it and remember it. Put your finger here in 1 Corinthians and turn back to the book of Hebrews, same chapter, chapter 10, but I want you to see the implications of what's going on here. We would normally read through this and not even think in the direction that I'm encouraging you. To think about because we would not compare this with 1 Corinthians 15. But if we're thinking about the ramifications of no resurrection of the dead and Christ not being raised, and those who have already passed away are going to just perish, they will never live again, and we are still in our sins, and preaching is empty, and our faith is empty, then there's something to be thinking about here when we look at chapter 10 of Hebrews. Verse 19, he says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, now think about this if there is no resurrection of the dead, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by a new and, what is the word, living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. Think about this. The way may be paved with his blood, but the door is locked shut because it is not a living way if Christ is not raised from the dead. We not only need the way to God to be paved by his blood, but we need the door to be flung open and for the hinges to be blown off the doorway because our Savior lives. There is no access to God if there is no resurrection from the dead. And if that is the case, those who are loved ones who have passed on before us, who know the Lord Jesus Christ, are found with no life and no access for the hope that they lived for. All of this makes a chapter like Hebrews 11 ridiculous. Here's a last point in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul wants to make. He says here, verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And notice verse 19. And if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, mark that, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Because the idea of the Greek word here for pitied is We deserve sympathy from every person because we have had nothing short of a pathetic belief. Our conviction that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave is absolute and complete foolishness. All hope in the work of Christ ends with this earthly life. It does not extend past our last breath. When we breathe our last, we're done. Notice how quickly it connects with 18. 18 is for those that have already passed on who believed in Christ. 19 is for those who are still living. And what we're being told here, Paul concludes, if the dead are not raised, therefore Christ is not raised. And that means for the Christian, this life is as good as it gets. I hope you're not satisfied with that. This life is not our hope. Yet if there is no resurrection of the dead, this life is all that you have. Why not work for it? If there is nothing beyond, why not do your best and try your hardest to find an alternative way to the Father? Many people do. But if they're confronted with a resurrected Christ, we would recognize that the work has already been done completely for us. I don't know about you, but these seven things, let me go over them again just to make sure that you notice them. If the dead are not raised that's the major premise here, then Christ has not been raised and if he hasn't been raised then preaching Christ is empty and our faith is empty. and our false we are false witnesses that are testifying against God. And we're still in our sins, both the penalty of sin being eternal death rests over us, and we have no power over sin in our daily life. There is no eternal life, and there is no abundant life. Not only that, but those who have already died, died. And that's all they did. They just stopped. And if that's the case, we can also look forward to the same, being those who are still living on earth. And the world can turn and mock us and call us pathetic beyond understanding. The consequences of such thinking are staggering. They are weighty because we begin to think about all that Jesus Christ is, and if he has not raised from the dead, he is not those things at all. A dead Lord has no authority over heaven and earth, as he told them with the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has not been given to him because that is a post-resurrection proclamation. A dead God has no superiority over anything. Why? Because death and sin were greater than him. A dead Christ has no strength for the day. He cannot help you. A dead comforter cannot give you aid. He is not there to comfort. A dead advocate cannot plead your case. Satan was right about us all along. A dead mediator makes communication with God impossible. There is no one who is holding the hand of God, and there is no one who is holding our hand to bring us together. A dead prophet lied and did not know the things to come. A dead high priest cannot atone for sins once and for all. A dead king cannot bring in a future reign. There is no future hope of all things being made right. A dead Savior cannot save me to the uttermost. And a dead Jesus cannot meet me where I am and take me where I need to go with God. I am helpless and I am hopeless. If there is no resurrection of the dead, we would often say, well, all hope is lost. And that's a false Conclusion. If there's no resurrection of the dead, it's not that all hope is lost. It's that there was never any hope to begin with. The resurrection of Jesus Christ causes the entire existence of eternity, past, present, and future to pivot on this one incredible act. What I'm thankful for is the fact that this is not what God's Word says. And I encourage you to look at chapter 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Not only that, he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. He is the first taste of the miraculous and wonderful things to come. Because those who are asleep, those who have passed away, will eventually be us. He is the forerunner us to come along behind him. He is setting the precedence for how God will treat us. And because God has raised him from the dead, he will also give us life at his coming. Says here, verse 21, for since by a man came death and that man is Adam, In Adam, we were born into the wrong family of Adam. In Adam, we are all sinners by nature and by choice. But notice this. So also in Christ, there's the location. All will be made alive. Now, that's not to say that you aren't alive now with abundant life. But he's using this in the context of resurrection. In other words, our rising again and being caught up in the air to meet him is a certainty because Christ is raised from the dead. And here's his concluding point. Verse 22:4, as in Adam, all die. That is a fact of history. Everyone is going to suffer death if they have not already. But here is the glorious fact. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. All. all, 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 all will be made alive. Every single person has this hope of the resurrection of the dead. Every single person sees Christ raised as the first fruits, guaranteeing what is to come. And if you are in Christ, if you have believed In the Lord Jesus Christ, you are now in him and you will be made alive. Though we are sitting in a situation right now in life where freedom has been restricted and coming and glowing as we please or being able to participate in what we otherwise considered the routine things of life have been stifled, this fact is not changed. Christ is still triumphant over death. He is still taking care of our sin problem. He has provided rest for every single person that has responded to him in faith. He has imparted new life to every believer in Christ. He has paved the way with his blood, but he has opened that door because he is alive. And that way is a living way. And and guys, we are far from pathetic we are far from hopeless. We are far from destitute. We have a living Lord. We have a living God, a living Christ, a living comforter, a living advocate, a living mediator, a living prophet, a living priest, a living king, a living savior, and we have a living Jesus who always takes us where we need to go with God. I pray that your heart rejoices in this hope, in this fact. We are not without. We are totally endowed. Father in heaven, how we rejoice in the greatness of Jesus Christ raised from the dead, setting the tone for all hope that the human race would ever have, and that is found only in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. How wonderful it is to know that death does not win, that sin does not hold dominion, that Satan is powerless. He is our great God and King. He is our Savior. He is our great mediator. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous on our behalf. Father, it it seems ridiculous to me that we would have nothing but hope. That we would have nothing but an incredible peace and rest because of all that we have been promised in Christ. And it has been guaranteed. It has been sealed. It has been authenticated. It is approved. It has been ratified by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are a people of great hope. And as we're commanded in 1 Thessalonians, I pray that we would encourage one another with our coming resurrection. How do we know this? Because Christ has been raised. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And he is a great and glorious Savior, saving us to the uttermost, leaving no stone unturned. No fear need paralyze us. We are completely accepted in the Beloved. Hallelujah. Praise his name. Thank you, God. We thank you. Father, may this day honor you. And if our hearts are pierced and compelled that we need to reach out and touch base with someone and talk to them about Jesus Christ, paying for sins, resurrected from the grave, presenting the gospel message to them. Lord, I pray we don't hesitate. We don't make excuses that the person that you're putting on our heart today, we would respond to that, and that today would be a full day of worship with smiles on our faces, joy in our hearts, thankful that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We love you so much. We thank you, God, for loving us first, and we thank you for this incredible demonstration of grace. It's in his name we pray it. Amen.